1: Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. In this week's podcast, we're looking at the European Union, which is facing showdowns on several fronts, with Britain over Brexit, and with Hungary and Poland over the rule of law and money. My guest is Professor Catherine de Vries of Bocconi University in Italy. So why is the European Union facing this double confrontation? It's now over four years since Britain voted for Brexit. The country actually formally left the EU earlier this year, but the crucial details of the new trading relationship between Britain and the EU have yet to be agreed, and we're running out of time. If a trade deal is not agreed by the end of this month, tariffs will rise and you can expect chaos on the border between Britain and the rest of Europe. In a bid to avert that outcome, Boris Johnson, the British Prime Minister, travelled to Brussels this week for an emergency discussion with the European Commission president, Ursula von der Leyen. This is what he had to say before leaving for Brussels. I'm always hopeful, yes, I, I'm very hopeful. Um, but I've got to be honest with you, I think the situation at the moment is, is very tricky. I think that um, our, our, our friends have, have just got to understand that uh, the UK has left the European Union in order, uh, to be able to exercise democratic control over over the way we do things. And uh, then there's also the issue of, of fisheries where we're a long way... While Brexit is an all-consuming issue here in the UK, for the EU there's arguably an even bigger issue on the table, the future of Hungary and Poland. Both these countries are still members of the EU, but they're accused of undermining the rule of law at home. The other EU members are trying to deal with this by tying payments from the budget to respect for the rule of law. But the Hungarians and Poles reject this. Here's Viktor Orbán, the Hungarian Prime Minister. So I'm standing on the status quo, as it is today, in regulation of rule of law, financial control of the budget and all that kind of thing. So I, I think it's OK. They would like to reach something which is not good quality enough in our understanding. So if there is a break, it's because of them, not because of this. If no deal is reached with the Hungarians and Poles, the EU may simply not be able to agree a budget. It will have to move on to a system of emergency financing. And perhaps more important, it will face a big, unresolved conflict with two important member states. Catherine Devries is the ideal person to speak to about all this because she's a particular expert on Euroscepticism, the kind of anti-EU sentiment that drove Brexit and that's very evident in the rhetoric of the Hungarian and Polish governments. We started by talking about Brexit, and in particular, the EU's insistence on a so-called level playing field in future trade relations. I began by asking Professor de Vries what the EU means by the phrase, and why it's so important.
0: The level playing field discussion, it's really a concept from trade policy, and it means that when businesses trade on a common market, they also have to compete on a common set of values or, or rules, let's say, and standards in order to ensure kind of fair and open competition. So I think what that particularly means for the Brexit negotiation and the EU side is that the 27 member states do not want British businesses to gain any form of competitive advantage, not just about state aid, but also kind of workers' rights, environmental protection. So I think that's the kind of core of the discussion.
1: And... Potentially, is that rather awkward for Britain? Because in a sense, is there any point in doing Brexit if you can't then try to improve your position by doing things differently from the EU?
0: Yeah, I think that's the core issue, right? So for me, I think there's been a problem in these negotiations from the start. And I think that is that the way that the British view these negotiations is ultimately political in nature, vis-a-vis the EU that views them as legalistic. So let me just kind of start with the UK, the political ones. I think that due to the fact that Brexit will have asymmetric consequences, right? So it will hit the Irish economy or the Dutch economy more than, let's say, the Spanish or Italian economy. I think a lot of the people on the British side thought, well, that opens up an opportunity for us to kind of negotiate with those countries that are going to be hardest hit and to get some form of concessions from their side. So that really is an idea of kind of divide and and, and conquering. uh, And that would ultimately be to the advantage of the British government. However, on the EU side, the kind of the core of these negotiations are trade negotiations. And trade negotiations are fundamentally about what the bread and butter of the EU is. It's also in EU jargon called an EU exclusive competence. So it's something that the EU really has full policy authority over. And you see that also in the fact that Barnier is doing the negotiations, the chief negotiator on the EU side. And Boris Johnson is not necessarily talking to German Chancellor Angela Merkel but to the Commission President uh, Ursula von der Leyen. So these are really about the legal integrity of the single market. And why then the level playing field is really important for the EU is because if you would give Britain any advantage on environmental standards or working standards, other member states would come around and say, hey, I, I also want those advantages. Also externally from the EU side, it would be like, well, we've just negotiated a trade deal with Canada If we now negotiate a different deal, a special status, if you will, for the UK, Canada might turn around and say, well, I want the same deal. So that fundamentally kind of hampers the way that you can deal with these negotiations. And I think that the British side never fully understood that, that it's basically about the core of the future of the entire European product, the way it structures its single market and the way it has relationships with so-called third countries, i.e. not members that really, really presses down the importance of, of, of a legal focus to this and a very rule-based focus to this on the on the EU side, which is then viewed by the British, I think, as, as inflexible or bureaucratic.
1: Yeah. And is there also a background set of political considerations for the Europeans? Because I remember at the time of the Brexit vote, there were some who said, well, look, Brexit could set a precedent for other countries to leave the EU. And obviously, particularly if it was seen to be going well. Is that still a concern and a reason for not saying to the British, fine, you know, we'll be flexible as the British see it? Because if you do that, it sets up a precedent, not just for relations with outsiders, but also a possible encouragement for Eurosceptic parties within the EU.
0: So, Gernie, I I think you're fundamentally right about that. The kind of legal focus that I said comes from the fact that the EU has such clear competencies on trade, but it's also beneficial from the EU side for the reasons that you've outlined. So especially at the beginning of the Brexit vote, there was this idea perhaps of a contagion risk to so the extent to which we would see other countries following suit. And that's because, you know, the EU 27 are kind of benchmarking what leaving the EU looks like from the British experience. And that first political and economic turmoil kind of put the European populations off. So what you see basically in public opinion surveys is that support for membership has increased since the British decision to leave. This might be kind of a temporary deterrent, but what does that mean in the long term? So if you have this kind of emeritus member state on your shores, you know, European populations are going to benchmark how the EU is doing the next crisis and how the UK is doing in the next crisis. And if the UK looks better than the EU and looks more favorable, that can actually spark off contagion risk in the the future. So I definitely think that that's part of political calculation on the EU side. And it's really not over. So this contagion risk will exist for quite a long time.
1: Mm. And what is the current condition of the Eurosceptic parties within Europe? I mean, you've suggested that actually, at least for a while, Brexit has undermined their case. But are they, if you're sitting in the Elysee or, you know, the German Chancellor's office or in the Italian government, wherever, do you still have to worry about a potential turn towards Euroscepticism in your populations?
0: So basically, my answer will be yes and no. And that's because I think Brexit has sparked up two party political developments. So the first is basically that Eurosceptic parties have transformed in what I call kind of remain Eurosceptics. So the idea of remaining in the European Union, but transforming it into something that you can work with, that you like. So think, for example, of someone like uh, President Macron having to face a far-right challenger, Marine Le Pen. Marine Le Pen traditionally expressed views of exit But it's now really much more talking about transforming the EU into a league of sovereign nations. So this could prove actually more challenging for the EU in the future, because if those parties enter government, you would have to deal with that sentiment at the EU level. And I think a second development that Brexit has sparked off is that really your skepticism have moved from kind of a more fringe phenomenon to a more permanent feature of party competition in continental Europe. And that's not only because we have, you know, Eurosceptic governments, think about the Hungarian government, the Polish government, but actually that these Eurosceptic political entrepreneurs now being more remain skeptics than exit skeptics, wanting to see, you know, reform of the EU are putting up a lot of pressure on governments to advocate national interest and to also negotiate in the national interest. So I think a case in point is the recovery negotiations after the first wave of COVID trying to deal with the economic fallout in the bloc. And you saw a Dutch prime minister, Mark Rutte, who really felt the heat of Eurosceptic challengers, like for far-right uh, leader, Geert Wilders, to have to really seem that he's negotiating what's best for the Dutch and also was willing to sometimes take an, an obstructionist stance. So in that way, because you don't have the Eurosceptic big brother, let's say Britain, you have to now come to the fore and show you know, that you're willing to negotiate for your country at the EU level by sometimes also taking obstructionist positions. Is that
1: potentially a viable alternative model for the EU, this Europe of sovereign states negotiating together? Or is it, in your view, something that if everybody did it would ultimately lead to the breakdown of the European Union?
0: So, I mean, that's a really difficult question, right? So I think many proponents of a federal Europe think of Guy Verhofstadt, former Belgian prime minister now in the European Parliament, would think this is the beginning of the end. The other side, which should be the long-term lesson of Brexit, is that certain member states have deviated so much in the decades of integration that maybe a one-size-fits-all policy doesn't work. So I think that the EU needs to really develop more flexible ways of integration and try to define what's a common core, what can you not negotiate on, and what are other things where there's more of a menu, where you could maybe sometimes go further and sometimes take a step back. And I think that's really the kind of core point that the EU is at. And you know it's really crucial that it negotiates that well in order to protect its core. And you know it will have to define what its core is. Is it only the single market? Is it rule of law? You know what are the core principles of European integration?
1: Yeah, which brings us to Hungary and Poland, who, as you said, are actually eurosceptic governments in a sense, as much as party movements. This confrontation is not, for obvious reasons, getting as many headlines in Britain as the Brexit negotiations, but. Do you think arguably it's actually even more important for the future of the EU because it is about this, not just a trade relationship, but about values and the the question of the rule of law?
0: Yeah, no, it's, it, it really goes to the core. I think you also see that in newspapers in Europe, in continental Europe. You see actually a lot of attention paid to this and the recovery fund rather than Brexit, if you will. And I think the core issue is that the EU has been kind of in a toxic dance, especially with Hungary and also recently with Poland for quite some time. So the reason why the Hungarian government and the Polish government now have leverage on the EU is because the German government in the rotating presidency at the helm, if you will, of EU presidency have linked the negotiations on the passage of the budget, so the multi-annual framework, as well as the recovery fund to this rule of law mechanism. And now it requires a unanimous approval of all government. And I think that this is really important because the EU has been kind of lackluster in this. The European People's Party has given the party of the Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban political backing, has not expelled this party. The second reason is also because we know that there's been misuse of EU funds in Hungary, especially that these are actually used to prop up kind of crony capitalism of Prime Minister Viktor Orban. The EU in in that way has found itself a bit in a trap with having governments that do not comply to core aspects of the treaty, because according to political scientists, you know, Hungary is no longer a full democracy, it's an autocracy with elections. So in that way, the EU will have to make a choice of how long can it accept this? And I think at this moment in time, for many EU governments also, there's come a point of no return. We really need to now stop this democratic erosion in Hungary and Poland. And we have to do it now because of the potential vetoes of Hungary and Poland on the recovery fund, which ultimately would hamper a good recovery in Europe where the support for countries that have been harder hit, for example, in Southern Europe, Italy and Spain, will be in jeopardy.
1: And do you think the EU actually has the leverage to do this? I mean, on the one hand, it looks like they should be the more powerful party. After all, they're the people providing money to the Poles and the Hungarians. But some people suggest that even the rule of law provisions, the Hungarians and the Poles will will find a way of getting around it, either rejecting it or watering it down. And that maybe even more profoundly, you're talking about the political cultures of these countries, which are very, very hard to change from the outside.
0: Now, I think ultimately, in order to regain democracy, especially in a country like Poland, where we saw also the election being quite close, many of us observers are a bit more pessimistic about Hungary and about the degree to which we really have seen erosion of core democratic rights and institutions in that country. But Poland is really kind of at a a tipping point. So the pressure is on at this moment in time. But ultimately, that would have to come from domestic constituencies. These governments have to be voted out of office. But it doesn't mean that the EU does not have any instruments. You know, the focus has been very much on Article 7. That's the kind of nuclear option, if you will. That's a treaty-based provision in which the EU could decide by unanimous support to take away voting rights of member states. Well, that's not going to happen because Hungary or Poland that face these procedures are going to be helped by each other, i.e. you're not going to get unanimous support for that. But the Commission could also go to the court and put forward uh, fines for the Hungarian and Polish government. So even if they would decide to kind of try to run around them. There's still a legal basis to be used. But I think another other element, which is overlooked often, is that member states can themselves also try to take other member states to court. So when they have the feeling or proof, even better, that, uh, for example, the Polish of the Hungarian government are not upholding the treaty provisions. And the Dutch government has actually done this in Poland. So it'll be very interesting to see how that develops in the future. So there are definitely instruments... But the commission has been a little bit wary to use them, arguably so, because it wants to represent all 27 member states. But now what we also see is that member states themselves are going to the court and saying, really look at this particular case, because we have the feeling that one other member state is violating basic principles of EU law.
1: How do you think it's going to culminate? though? I mean, it's obviously very hard to tell, but is it your sense that the EU will be able to hold it together and remain a kind of as they call it, a union of values, a union of democracies, or is something going to break and these countries will end up leaving or being expelled?
0: I think that's the kind of million-dollar question. And if I probably would know, I would be going to the bookies and taking bets on this. I mean, I don't know. But I do think that it's a real core challenge because potentially eroding rule of law and democracy extends to other member states as well. Think, for example, of Bulgaria and Romania, where there are also concerns about corruption, but also concerns about executive overreach. And I think it's also a bit the sign of the times. I mean, in the pandemic, we've seen more countries where we're worried about erosion of democracy. I mean, even the UK has not been immune to that. The US has not been immune to that. Israel has not been immune to that. So in that way, I think if the EU doesn't signal now that it really is committed to rule of law and to the soft power that it's wielded in the world on being a law-based principled trade bloc that wants to prevent war, through cooperation and through commitments to democracy, that is a core challenge for the EU, and it has to rise up to that challenge. And ultimately now on the negotiations with Hungary and Poland, it has to call the bluff of these governments that arguably need the money, right? They need the recovery funds and the EU funds for their regimes to survive. So I think this is poker and this is, uh, this is hardball, but I think it's crucial for the EU and for the integrity of this legal-based union that the EU is.
1: So finally, to take stock, I mean, it looks like the EU is going to culminate what's been a very rough year because of COVID with two really massive showdowns. I mean, uh, the Hungary and Poland one and Brexit. Do they have the energy to take all of this on at the same time in the middle of a pandemic?
0: So in that way, I think, you know, how it's viewed from a lot of continental European capitals is actually it shows the advantage of the EU. If you are in a COVID situation, so you domestically have to deal with, you know, with social distancing, with perhaps having more lockdowns, with hospitalizations, ICUs, you now have Michel Barnier, the chief negotiator of the EU in Brexit, negotiating on your behalf. And he's staying in close contact with national capitals. So also you have the commission actually taking the initiative on the rule of law negotiations with Hungary and Poland and preparing possibly what's discussed, enhanced cooperation. So even if Hungary and Poland would stick to their vetoes, there would be another way forward by the 25 member states to go ahead and to have the recovery fund to support the economic and political recovery within EU member states. So I think from the kind of view of European capitals, it actually shows the advantage of not being 27 member states that have to negotiate with the UK on Brexit or 25 member states that would have to negotiate with Hungary and Poland, but they can do it together. So in that way, I think it's not so much the fatigue. You have two layers of government, which are working quite well together at this point.
1: That was Professor Catherine de Vries in Milan, ending this edition of the Rachman Review. Thanks for listening. And I hope you'll be able to join us again next week, when we'll be doing an end-of-the-year roundup with my fellow FT columnist, Martin Wolf, and with the FT's editor-in-chief, Rula Khalaf. You'll be able to find the show in all the usual podcast apps.